0: I can't. Gestures. No, that was
1: Conference, And we've been speaking about hermeneutics, the foundations of the Trinity, the incomprehensibility of God, the simplicity of God, the immutability and the impassibility of God, all these under the heading of the doctrine of God. And as we've already spoken of in our Sunday School Hour, these things bring us not to be able to comprehend God completely, lest we would be God, but to be able to apprehend him as he has revealed himself. And it brings us not to a point of saying, wow, we're just smarter. But it brings us to a point of knowing That God and God alone is worthy of worship. He is owed our worship. That is the purpose. That is the reason that we are here this morning. As we come together, I would. uh, This may be news to some of you. Some of you already have been informed. Our dear brother, Alma Castle. Early this morning. Went to be with the Lord. And we we have emotions that pull us in both directions. As it is, as it should be when a believer passes from this life, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. When someone who is unsafe, who does not know Jesus dies, there's not much hope. There's not much hope or consolation. But for us, when a believer in Jesus Christ passes from this life, we know that we will miss them, we know that we love them and, and will um will have heartache. But we also know that they are in the presence of the Lord. We know that Brother Al is not saying, My hip hurts. We know that the Lord and Christ who he served, who he loved, who he praised, now he's in his presence. What a blessing. Psalm 116 reminds us precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of a saint. Revelations reminds us blessed Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Their death is blessed. And we know that the death of Brother Al, while it brings us heartache, while it brings us grief, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope in Jesus Christ. And uh, I want to read from Hebrews chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. You may turn to Psalm 135. You'll find that in your worship guide. But I just want to read a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. That through death, he, that is Jesus, might render powerless him who had power of death, that is the devil And might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus Christ took on flesh. And through his death, we who have been in slavery are freed. Brother Al knows that better than any of us this morning. Psalm 135 is our call to worship this morning. If you would follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read, this is the Word of God. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his particular treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did in the heavens, and in earth, in the sea, and all deep places." He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth and maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of its treasuries who who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants." Who smote great nations and slew mighty kings. Sihon king of the Amorites. And Og king of Bashan. And all the kingdoms of Canaan. And gave their land for an inheritance. An inheritance unto Israel his people. Thy name O Lord endureth forever. And thy memorial O Lord throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people He will repent himself concerning his servants. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold. The works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them. Are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Let us call upon God to bless our worship as we bow together in prayer. Great triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you in prayer. We come boldly, pleading the blood of Jesus Christ as our access to your throne, as our access to our great God. We honor you. We adore you. We ascribe to you this day all that is due to your name, all majesty, all glory, power, honor, strength. All truth is yours. We come before you today recognizing and confessing our sins. God, we are we are angry without cause. Not with a righteous indignation as you have, but with sinful anger. Pride swells up in us. Too often we don't hate our pride, but we love it. In speaking to others, we reveal what is in our hearts that we are self-righteous. Our selfishness, Is on display. We judge. Not according to your word. Not according to your standards. But according to our own minds. According to our own hearts. We judge with our standard. Forgive us. For these sins. Forgive us for the sin that. You know that you would point out to us. Even now. Lust. Idolatry. Covetousness. Help us God. Help us even now, even this day to cast off the works of darkness. Help us to put on the armor of light. To put on Christ. To put off sin and to put on righteousness. To put off the old man and to put on Christ. Help us to walk honestly in the daylight. Not in rioting, not in drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not striving and envying. Help us to walk in light as you are in the light. Help us Rather than to judge one another and become a block of stumbling, help us to not be an occasion for a brother to fall. Help us to follow after the things that make for peace. The things wherein we may edify one another. The things wherein we may glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray even today as we mourn the death of our friend and our brother, that you may use this as a reminder of the day of our death, each one of us, that you may remind us that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Not even today as we speak of our ministry and our families speaking the truth of the gospel to those whom we love, speaking to our neighbors and those in our workplaces, Lord, speaking about the sin of man and the the plight of man in sin. Speaking about what Christ Jesus has done to die on Calvary's tree. Lord, we know that we waste our breath if our words are not met with the work of your spirit. So God, we pray that you would, that you would make the word, your word, your gospel efficacious for salvation. For those whom you have called, we ask that you would save our children, save our spouses, save our parents, our brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are the incomprehensible, immutable God of Scripture. That we can rest in your word. That we can find comfort, lasting comfort in your promises. Because of who you are. God, we pray These things asking these things. Worshiping you in the name of Jesus for your kingdom's sake. Amen. I would invite you to stand. If you would take your worship guide. On the front you will find the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. As we confess our faith. Uh, The word creed by the way means I believe or we believe. So we will proclaim this morning. We believe, uh, as we confess our faith to one another. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the father and the son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. If you would turn in your hymnal to hymn number 50, Praise to the Lord.
2: We've had already in our Bible study, Jeff. Thank you, and those others that are helping us in our Bible study. Thank we pray for years that we'd be equipped. We've been equipped in ways that we can't thank God enough for. And we're glad that each and one of you are here today. And as we go through our time today, we can praise God and thank God because His perfect purpose and will. And today, my heart goes out to the McCousels, Miss Linda, and we'll be praying for them. And I hope that we know and understand the importance of our time together, that we redeem it, redeem it well. And in so doing, that means that we bear one another's burdens. And today, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we put that into action as we are here and we're congregated together for the purpose of worshiping, praising the only one worthy of worship and praising. Amen. So we're going to be reading this morning in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Prepare your hearts, this is God's word. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer and I, and, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Blessed is the reading of God's word. If you would join with me as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. It's in your bulletin. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen O gracious and heavenly father we come before your throne today is the day let us rejoice and be glad in it that we can come together and and partake in your wonderful love and grace and mercy through your son, Christ Jesus. Today, as we come together, you have blessed us with so much. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the time that we have already shared. In the time that we have already had in, in reading and singing and praying. Lord, these things are what you have given us to do. We are thankful that we have able bodies to do this. We're thankful for the time and the place that we have. Lord, you have blessed us. We ought not take it for granted. We pray today, Lord, for the McCassels and Miss Linda, Lord, I lift her up. I pray for the entire family as they go through this time. And Lord, we're thankful for the heart of Brother Phil and what we have seen in, in really such a short time that we have known him. But as our brother Jeff said an impact that he has made on us Lord it's, it's good to hear the heart of a man praying to a holy God as we had the wonderful opportunity to hear to hear him pray to hear brother outplay pray recently. Lord it is in my heart and in my mind as we go through our lives that we would be, such a witness that we would have such a testimony to love the Lord our God to speak about it to pray about it to be an example of it in amongst our own family in amongst our congregation and our brotherhood lord it is good it is that as you have commanded us we thank you for the heart and the love that he showed his family As he prayed that day, Lord, it is from your own hand and your own heart into his. It is your glory. All is your glory. It existed before time. You have seen fit to allow us to partake in these things and these common graces. And in these means of grace, Lord, that you have so... Richly provided for us through these things today as we worship. Lord, I pray today for the word, for the word preached. For the salvation of sinners. For those that are in need of hope. True hope. We are thankful for your holiness, oh God, as we have even heard earlier today. We're thankful that you have seen fit to call the people to yourself that you would continue to draw us. Let us be mindful of who we serve. A holy God, a just God, a righteous God. And you are our Father. Lord, I pray today as Todd brings the word, as our brother preaches, Jesus, that our hearts and minds and our wills would be forever changed to yours, that we would be mindful of and convicted of sin in our life. Lord, many churches do not even mention sin. Lord, but we are thankful that through what you have created us to know and see and the example that that we have a Christ for our sin unless otherwise, why would the son of God have to die? Lord, we thank you. Lord, as we pray for our brother as he brings the word today, we also are mindful of brother Taylor as he is preaching there in Conroe today. And those like-minded brothers and sisters there, those, those saints there who love you Lord. That it would be for their edification that you would give him the same as I would ask for any pastor today, any preacher that would stand and preach your word, that he would have clarity, that he would have recall, that he would have courage, that he would have steadfastness, that he would stand on the foundation, Lord, that is Christ. And that it would be rightly divided and that the sheep, Lord, your people would benefit. Lord, we pray these things weekly, but we need these things weekly, daily, Lord. Thankful for other churches in our association here in Texas and even across this country. We ask the same prayer for those saints and those pastors today. Lord, this country stands in need of a revival, this country stands in need of hearing Christ. Lord, this whole world, Lord, there are so many, Lord, there are so many that need you. Lord, we pray that in your perfect will and purpose that there would be someone today, someone to preach, and there would be those that would hear. It would be with the eyes of our hearts. It would be for our soul. It would be for a purpose higher than what we see. The examples in this world that would deceive us. There are many today, Lord, even intentionally, would seek to deceive. Lord, I pray that we would stand on the truth that the word preached today would be your word, would be your truth. And it would be for for our souls today, Lord, but we must see also into eternity that you have good for us. And as we go throughout today, that you would help us to be good hearers of your word, that you would grant us Holy Spirit, your word says that you are with us today, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brennan. Please rise as we sing, Teach Me the Measure of My Days, in 741.
3: in the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited with fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you. God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise also you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from by what is nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? the ushers please come forward. Please pray for me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time here to hear your word, to fellowship with like-minded believers. I ask that you would give us hearts like yours, and that we would be cheerful viewers in our offering. Lead us in your ways. Teach us your truth that you would bless us and strengthen us in our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
1: remember our toil he doth quickly repay quickly but that's not true and that's not what the hymn says but it is true what it does say our toil he doth richly repay you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 15 Acts chapter 15 We've just spent five weeks hearing sermons preached from this chapter, so probably someone is saying, Did he mean 16? No, Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is well known to deal with many complicated issues. That if we misunderstand this chapter, if we misinterpret, misappropriate this chapter, we can fall into error. We can fall into the error of church. Independency. We can fall into the error of Presbyterian church polity. We can become divisive and exhibit behavior that is unbecoming of the body of Christ. If we get this chapter wrong, we can become confused about how to think about the matters of law and gospel, about how to think about grace and works. Acts 15 is very important. Our brother Taylor has worked through these texts and shown us the threat that arose to the gospel from those Jews that were trying to add circumcision as a requirement for salvation. But we need to... We need to see a few additional things and I'll probably say a few things repeated that he's already said, but we need to see a few additional things from this chapter. What I'm trying to say is Brother Taylor preached five messages from this chapter and I could preach 10 more and we still wouldn't say everything that could be said here about this text. In, instead, we will spend today, that's the plan to spend today in an overview of one, one high-altitude view of chapter 15, and then we'll move forward next week, Lord willing. Instead of reading the entirety of the chapter, that's what I started with, and then as we as I began to prepare, I realized we don't have time to read the entirety of the chapter. So what I'd like to do is just work through it as we go. So please keep your Bible open and close. Close at hand will be following along and there are things that I'm going to say and you need to be looking every once in a while and making sure that you see that in the text. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would apply your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, that you would make us good hearers of the word. God, that our hearts would be good soil for the seed of the gospel to take root. We pray this morning that your word would accomplish the sanctification of saints and the salvation of sinners. Bless this preacher. Hide me behind the cross of Christ. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So we begin in verse one, Acts 15. 1. some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers. And this is what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is the threat to the gospel that we've seen in the past. And we dare not think that, that Acts 15 and the council and the statements that were made from Paul and then from Peter and from James and the letter that was written. We dare not think that these events in Acts 15 resolved this matter. These same problems, adding works to grace, will come up again later in the New Testament. And if you're not aware, let me go ahead and tell you, I'll break the news to you. This is still an error that we see among us today, to this very day. Now, somebody may think it, Be thinking, is there anybody that's vying for adding circumcision to salvation? I don't know of anyone vying to add circumcision to the gospel. But there are those who would add other types of works and any addition to the gospel. Listen, this is important. Any addition to the gospel renders the gospel false and powerless Any addition to the gospel is a false gospel and a powerless gospel. The Mormons teach that you do all you can do. You pile up all your good works that you can muster. Then at the end, grace comes in to fill up the last bit needed to save your soul. And that is a heresy straight from hell. I'm going to say that. And I also want you to know. What we read here in Acts 15:1 is just as much. A heresy straight from hell. That you must be circumcised to be saved. The Mormon teaching. That it's grace. After works. Is a heresy from hell. The Roman Catholics. Those papists. Teach that the benefits of Christ's life and death are not replaced. Your your life, your sin and and your things being placed on Christ and his imputation to you. But they teach that your good works are infused with Christ's good works. I I always think, I don't have this in my notes so this may be a messed up thing. I always think of um, Wolverine. You know, he had the skeletal structure, but then they infused him with that metal that I'm not going to pretend to know. what It It was an infuse. It was an adding. They took what he had and they added something and what he had and what they added together made Wolverine. Never heard Wolverine in a sermon. The Catholic doctrine is exactly that. You take what you've got, your works, your righteousness, and it is infused with what Jesus brings. And together, together there is salvation. And whatever sin might still remain can be burned off in purgatory fires. And this awful doctrine that they teach as salvation is grace mixed with works. And it is heresy. Heresy. You did not hear me say that there are no Catholics going to heaven. You heard me say this, and I want to be very clear. The doctrine of the Catholic church is a heresy from the pits of hell. These teachings of the Mormons, of the Romanists, and of these Judaizers here in Acts 15, these so-called gospels are what the apostle called not a gospel They are damnable heresies. But they are also very close to the heart of men. We tend to think, we tend toward, I can save myself or I can at least add something to my salvation. This is very close to the heart of man. But we, According to the scripture, the Bible doctrine is the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can only be saved when we place our faith. When we trust in Jesus Christ and him alone in his work. And we receive that salvation by grace alone through faith. Alone, And even for those of us who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, we sometimes are tempted to return to the idea that our works can add something, can enhance our eternal souls. This was the era of the Galatians. Paul had to remind them of the the grace by which they were saved. It was grace without works. He called them back to the gospel. The gospel is not only a call to the lost. It is certainly that. But the gospel is also for Christians. You ever get tired of hearing the gospel? I went to church. The preacher preached. It was just the gospel all over again. (laughs) We may not say that out loud, but sometimes we feel that. The gospel is for Christians as well. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for the whole world. For the child of God, the gospel reminds us of what Christ has done to rescue us from the pit. The gospel combats our prideful notions of meritorious works. The gospel says, no, it is by Christ alone. The gospel anchors the Christian in the rock of our salvation. Christian, we need to hear the gospel. But let us not think that this error from Acts 15 is dead. May the true gospel of God's grace apart from works be preached in our pulpit And may we who have been saved by the gospel continue to preach that gospel to our own souls as a comfort and as a guard against error. Verse two, after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them. Just consider this. Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. Do you remember what happened there? They were run out of one town because of threat of death. They went to the next town where Paul was stoned and they intended to kill him and left him for dead. They had been met with controversy, divisiveness, trouble on every hand, but now they're home. Isn't it good to be home? And what do they find? Trouble. They've returned from their travels. And they're met with more trouble. If we read further, we'll find out that Paul, the apostle Paul, was never far from trouble. And the other apostles were not far from trouble either. And the elders and the Christians of the early church were never far from trouble. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus gives us this promise. If you love promises of scripture, here's one for you. In this world, you will have trouble. It's the promise of Christ. So we should learn from our text. We should learn from the scripture that trouble is an ever present thing in the life of a Christian. We should not expect peace and comfort in this life. Any peace and comfort that we find, we should be thankful for But we should not expect that to be the norm. But we, for peace and comfort, we look to the eternal state. We look for the life that is to come. There we will find our final rest. But here in this world, you will have trouble. And the apostle Paul and Barnabas here find more trouble. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them, it says here, we're going to get, we're going to, dig in a little here. It says here the brothers in the New American Standard. If you have a King James it says they determine you know, what they're determining is that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. So they're, they're saying we need to send Paul and Barnabas but they're saying this. If, if your Bible says the brothers, notice the font. Notice the, notice the italics. The brothers or the brethren is added to And let's say they add these things for our help, and we're gonna see this is not really a help. But the King James adds or puts they, and that would be that would be the word they, and that's not a help either. Because we've got to ask this question Who is they? Who are the brothers? Starting here in verse 2, and through the remainder of the chapter, we need to take great care. There are pronouns like they and them. And other references like the brothers, the brethren. Look at verse 4. We read there that in Jerusalem they were welcomed by the elders. Look at verse 6. And we notice that the apostles and the elders came together. In verse 13, James addresses brothers Brethren, even in the letter that was sent down in verse 23, the salutation begins with the apostles and the brothers who are elders. And we have to be careful with this because there's no proper names. We have to ask, who is they? Who are the brothers? Who are the elders? What? What? What churches are are these? The elders from Jerusalem? Are these the elders from Pisidian Antioch? Are these the elders from all the churches of the regions? Hint. That's the answer. Are these? Are these? Who is this? Who are the elders? Who are the brethren? Who is they referring to? And we have to ask these questions lest we fall into error, because the answer to these questions: Who is this? Who is talking? This will determine how we see the church of Jesus Christ organized and functioning. Now I'm going to use a big word here. Some of you, it might be new. Ecclesiology. You can just think of it as the study of the church or how the church, this is how we'll be using how the church is organized, how the church is put together and set up, how the church functions. Now, some of you know that there are different ways of churches functioning. Some of you have been to churches that have a senior pastor and a junior pastor or an assistant pastor or under pastors. And We don't have that here. And and it's not that, well, we're not a big enough church yet. Once we get there, then no, we don't see that as a biblical model. There are pastors, elders, same word, Bishops. Same word. Shepherds. And now we have in this church two elders, and we don't have different titles and different job descriptions. Now, now, yes, mine is the ugly mug that you look at more in this setting. But we are equal, equally elders of the church. All of these things, this falls under ecclesiology. How is the church established, governed, set up, functions, all of those things. So we're going to use that word ecclesiology. When you hear me say that this morning, he means how does the church work? How does the church function? How we answer the questions of who is they, who are the elders, who are the brethren, who is this in Acts 15. How we answer that will determine how we see the church of Jesus Christ functioning. Our ecclesiology is set right here in Acts 15. And it's not just us. Many churches come to Acts 15. But because we have different answers to who is they and who are the elders and who are the brethren, we come to different conclusions. Some Someone may be asking, I, I hope someone is asking, isn't this a historical narrative? This is not didactic instruction. <laughs> This, this is a historical note. Isn't this, this is maybe how you're saying, it, isn't this description and not prescription? And the answer is yes, you are correct. This is not prescription. There is no command. I would have the churches established thusly. But what we do have here is not explicit instruction, but we have implications. The descriptive texts. Now, we we dare not take a descriptive text where there is another text that is explicit instruction and try to juxtapose them. We dare not do that. But where there is no explicit instruction or where the Bible is not as clear on some things, we can derive a lot. We can learn a lot from a historical narrative. We can learn a lot from description. That's what we're doing this morning. We're learning a lot from this description. And we're we're being instructed by the scripture implicitly. When we find implications in scripture rather than explicit command, we must be cautious. Because men fall into error when they misread, misinterpret these implications. And... uh, sometimes that leads us into horrible heresies. Sometimes it leads us into things that we would say. That's a difference of opinion and a difference of understanding. And while we don't deny that you are Christian brothers, we do separate. That's why you hear us say about our Presbyterian brothers. Do we ever say Presbyterian without saying our Presbyterian brothers? We say that, but there are things in Acts 15 that that cause us to divide and separate in ecclesiology. So when we read they, the elders, the church, some take this to mean, well, this is Jerusalem. This is only Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem, the elders at Jerusalem, the brethren at Jerusalem, This is a single church that is spoken of here. And then they determine that a single church, let's just say something like the church of Rome, can govern and overlord over all the churches. We believe this to be a misunderstanding of this text and an error in ecclesiology. This is not Jerusalem ruling all the churches. Some take this text, particularly in verse 2 when it says brothers or they determined that this is some sort of a presbytery summoning Paul and Barnabas to give an account. Come before the council and give an account because we are like a presbytery, a ruling over. In, In this view, the presbytery would have authority over the elders of the churches and authority thus over the churches. And we believe this, too, to be an error. Now, not the same error as the first error where Jerusalem is ruling over. Not the same, but we also believe that to be an error. Someone might look at verse 19 and you see James, the elder of the church of Jerusalem, and he says, my judgment is, you see that in the text? My judgment is such and such. And you may think that this is James ruling over the whole gathering. This is not just one church ruling. This is James ruling over the whole thing. James is over all the churches. But when we understand that James's statement, it is my judgment, is better understood to be this. I make a motion. I mean, that's, that's what James is saying. He's not saying it is my judgment and you all must fall in line. It is my judgment. Opinion. It is my judgment, and I move that we take this opinion. And that's what James is saying here. So we do not think in this text of James as some sort of a popish figure. That would be error. Also, not in my notes, but let me just pause here and say James, it is my judgment, was in the presence of Peter, who is also not ruling. From a popish throne. You don't don't find that in the New Testament at all. It's the invention of men. We believe this text, when carefully parsed, is more like a formal association of churches. It's not a loose association, but a formal association of churches which listen and then give advice to the churches. This matter is so important as the protection and preservation of the gospel. And this gathering, we believe, is a gathering of elders from all the churches. And it was necessary if Paul and Barnabas could have resolved this matter locally, they would never have left with. That it would have been settled right there. But but the effects of this, what James called trouble. James didn't say, You are troublemakers. He was more, was more gentle than I would be. But he said, It is my judgment, and I'm paraphrasing here, that we not trouble the churches. What he's saying is, You've been troubling the churches. You've been causing trouble. You're troublemakers and we need to stop this. These troublemakers had troubled so much and it had gone widespread and it could not be handled locally. It was widespread heresy. The Jews, many of the Jews believed that the events with Peter and Cornelius, remember where Peter went to the home of Cornelius and only after he had received A vision, multiple visions from God. And he went to the home of Cornelius, and Gentiles were saved by grace and received the Holy Spirit. Many of the Jews believed, well, that was just that was just the exception to the rule. I mean that was a one time thing. That's not what it was. It was it was what God was doing. It was was to correct their understanding of the kingdom. But they thought, well, this is just a one-time thing. And this council of churches, the associational gathering that included the apostles and the elders of the church was necessary to point out this thing with Peter and the thing that's happening with Paul. This is the same thing. And it's what God is doing. And the gospel is what was at stake. I would also, just while we're here, better heard, while we're here, I would point out James is also managing the difficult climate of those who might look at Paul and say, I think he's the problem. Paul's the problem. He's, he's really the troublemaker, isn't he? So when James makes his judgment, he says, our brother, Simon Peter. See, he just he just kind of glosses over Paul. And goes back to what Peter had dealt with, with Cornelius. And that is to um, managing those troubled waters very carefully. Some people have a problem with that. I don't, I don't have that personality, but, but that's, that's what he was doing. The gospel is what is at stake. And this gathering from all the churches in the region, what I'm calling an associational meeting, Was necessary because the gospel was at stake. And and the threat against the gospel. Did not die then. And it will not die. Until the end of this age. When our Lord returns. So the churches of Jesus Christ. In formal association and relationship with one another. The churches must stand. And we must stand together. And at times we must come together meet together to face to battle the enemy of the gospel. Now this is not the only text that that we build our ecclesiology on, but the framers of our confession who knew scripture well used this text greatly In chapter 26 of our confession, I'm going to ask you to turn there. If you don't have a copy of the confession with you, you can find it in the hymnal. If you have your hymnal, uh, in the back. Now, in our hymnal, it gets confusing. There's hymn number 685. That's not where we're turning to. But if you keep going to the back, there's page number 685. Page number 685. This is chapter 26 and paragraph 15. chapter 26 paragraph 15 of our confession says in cases of difficulties or differences either in points of doctrine or administration wherein either the churches in general are concerned or any one church in their peace unity and edification or any member of Or members, plural, of any church are injured in or by any proceeding in censures, not agreeable to truth and order. Let's pause right there at the colon. Let's just say this situation fits what we find here in Acts 15. It's a a matter. It's a it's a difference and difficulty in a point of doctrine. And we should also note, just while we're here, notice it talks about churches. It it talks about a church and churches. It talks about members of a church or a member of a church. Sometimes members of a church feel like, well, if we're being abused by our pastor, spiritual abuse, which happens, if there's something going on that's wrong here, where do we go? That preacher was here when I got here. What do I do? I have no recourse. This is recourse for you church and for members of the church and here's what's to happen it is in accord to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers those elders sent to be messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about the matter of difference to be reported to all the churches concern you see that's what we're reading here in Acts 15 the churches, the representatives or the messengers from all the churches came together. They heard and they gave their advice and they wrote a letter and it was sent to the churches. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see Paul taking the letter and reading it and, and distributing it. So we're going to see that. That's exactly what we find here. Uh, uh, we're, OK, how be it? Sorry, I'm picking up at a semicolon. How be it? These messengers assemble. Here's the limitation of power. This is why it's not a denomination. This is, this is why it's different from that. The messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so called or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censure either over any churches or persons or to impose their determination on the churches or the officers. The association and any council that hears—I've stopped reading now. The association, and any council that hears and and does these things, doesn't have authority to say you must. They give advice that may be heeded or not heeded. And if it's not heeded, sometimes if you've abandoned doctrine, if you've abandoned uh, the thing that holds us together, then that means removal of the fellowship of association that's that's what we have here here in acts 15 we have the foundation laid for associationalism somebody says well associationalism is not here it don't fall into the word concept error the word is not here the concept is here so we have that here in acts 15 and there is no Biblical basis for a denomination. I could put a period there. But there's no biblical basis for a denomination ruling over a church. There's no biblical justification for a church presiding over another church, a la Rome. And there's no grounds for independency of a church you see a church that has the word independent anywhere in their name or on their sign, beware. There is no biblical basis for independency of a church. And there's certainly no biblical basis for independent or untethered, unconnected Christians who are not formally part of a local New Testament church. There is biblical implication here and elsewhere that leads us to say that Christ alone is the head of the church, that he has given the keys of the kingdom to the church. That those Christians whom he has called out of the world are commanded to walk together in particular churches. That means specific churches, not just a different church every time the wind blows another direction and not no church, but to walk together in particular churches, walking together for mutual edification for the public worship of God. And for the other duties that God requires of us in this world. Now, I've just taken that and distilled and and reworded some of the things that our confession speaks. Allow me now to call your attention to verse 13. I've determined I'm going to finish. I haven't preached in a while. Verse 13. We're going to read through verse 18. After they stopped speaking, James responded saying, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Simon Peter, has described how God first concerned himself about taking a people for his name from among the Gentiles. Notice that taking a people for God's name from among the Gentiles. Then he in 15, the words of the prophets agree with this just as it is written. Watch 16 and pay attention. After these things, I will return and... I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. Is that a new construction project? That's a rebuild. I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. The Judaizers, they thought, well, that thing with Peter and Cornelius, that thing with the Gentiles, that was just momentary. That was just temporary. That was a one-time thing, and it's over. But that was not true. And the church council has spoken to that effect. But today, there are still those who hold to this error, or to a form of this error. They say, the Jews... They're the real chosen people of God and the Gentiles. This Gentile time, which is the time in which we are living, that's just a temporary ordeal. God, God had his chosen people and then he he called for a time out. They'll use this terminology, a parenthesis. And the Gentile, this church age that we live in, this is just a parenthesis in God's bigger story, which is with the Jews. And one day, God will return to his people. He'll pick back up with them again national Israel. The people who are Israel by physical descendancy. That's the error. That this thing with the Gentiles, even today, I mean, it's been going on for near 2000 years, but even today, it's still just temporary. But what we read here in these verses, what we have just read is what God is doing with the Gentiles is a rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. It's not a new group. It's not a new people. It's not a new thing. He's not starting over. He's not having a parenthesis. This is God's people. The people who are called by my name, which includes the Gentiles who are called by my name. The tabernacle of David is being rebuilt and the rebuilding includes, in the words of this text, all the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord. And this doctrine that I have described, this parenthesis where the Gentile thing is just a temporary moment. This is. This is the doctrines of dispensationalism that relegate Gentiles to some second class status in redemptive history. And this is a gross error and an assault on the true people of God, true Israel, who are descendants of Abraham by faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To five months today. It's okay to be quiet. You're either quiet and in agreement, or quiet in disagreement, or quiet in confusion, and I hope that you will, no matter what your position, search this, search this text and see if this is not the truth that's being taught here. Verse 19. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not cause trouble. For those of the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them saying, and this is what they want to say. Abstain from things that are contaminated or polluted by idols. That's number one. Abstain from acts of sexual immorality. Abstain from fornication. Cornea. And thirdly, abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. So we have these three things. There are two ways that we can consider and look at these three things. One, we've already looked at these things could be the things that were particular temptations from the days of lost sinfulness for those Gentiles who had come to Christ. And, And we just talked about this morning in Sunday school. If you have a particular inclination toward a particular sin, don't go down that road. And that may be how we understand this. And and I think that's perfectly valid. But there's a second thing that we may learn from this. Many of the Jews would see the Gentiles as enemies. If the Gentiles Christians were ever to win the Jews, to win them over or to win them to Christ, if they were to be a witness of the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God then they would need to abstain from these things that would be a sure and certain offense to the Jews. Now, now two of these things are are temporary there for this particular time, one of these things comes from the moral law of God, abstain from fornication. But but they weren't saying ignore the rest of the moral law. They were just saying this is a particular thing that we might want to point out to you. And then these other two and these three are mentioned here that we might learn a principle. And it's the same principle that's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll ask you again if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 8. We'll read a few verses there. This principle that we find here in Acts 15 and that we're going to read about in 1 Corinthians 8 is the principle of how we are to love those who are weaker. Here, advice is given not to eat what is polluted by idols. But 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to find this. Paul makes the case that idols are nothing. We would all say, amen, idols are nothing. I, I'm, I know I don't have time. I, I met a missionary from uh, Africa who had a little idol. It was about 12 inches tall, a little idol. That was an actual, they worshiped this in some African tribe. And he gave it to me. And he said when he gave it to me, it's probably not good for me to have it. But I'm in Texas. I put it in my office as decoration. And people ask, "What is that?" And it was a conversation piece. And we could talk about idolatry, and we could talk about false gods and true God and, and it meant nothing. And I was not one not one night that I lay late. Lay late. Lay awake worried that I was going to have some curse or You know what? It's a piece of wood. I had a bunch of them in my garage. And one on my shelf in my office. It was nothing. And Paul makes that case. This is nothing. So so the difference when we're told in Acts 15. We would advise you not to eat the the food sacrificed to idols. Those things polluted by idols. And here in Corinthians. The difference that's made is not the idol. Because the idol is nothing. The difference that's made is the offense that is brought to the weaker brother. So let's read uh, verses 4 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13. Therefore, concerning the eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, thus lowercase gods and lowercase lords, yet there is for us the only one God, the Father from whom all things, uh from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all people have this knowledge. Not everybody gets that yet. But some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. See, do you eat the food because it's a good steak or do you eat the food because it was sacrificed? Are you thinking that while you're doing it? Okay, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse eight, now food will not bring us close to God. We are neither worse if we do not eat or better if we do eat. But take care that this freedom of yours, Christians, this is a freedom of yours. Take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, his will, uh, his, will his conscience, if he is weak, not be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, the one who is weak is Roman, the brother or the sister for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brother and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again. So that it will not cause an offense to my brother. It will not cause my brother to sin. I think it's important here as we talk about this principle. To say that this text is often misused. This text is often wielded as a weapon. Against those who wish to squash Christian liberty. And bind believers to their own personal pet set of do's and don'ts. Some of you have been there. If you don't know about it, we got some stories we can tell. you. Some Christians who should be mature. I've been a Christian for 40 years and you should be mature. You should be able to eat meat, but you're still on milk. You seem to enjoy holding. I'm not talking to anyone that I'm not talking to any one of you unless it applies. You seem to be holding others hostage by saying, don't handle don't taste, don't touch when these are the teachings that seem, seem to have a wisdom, but it's according to the religion of men. And those arbitrary man-made rules have no power against fleshly indulgence and sin. So this is abused. That said, remembering the abuses, there are times when it is right, when it is necessary that we curb our freedom, brothers and sisters, that we curb our freedom for the good of an infant believer. There are times when we must lay aside our liberty for the sake of a weaker brother. This is what we have just read in 1 Corinthians. And it's the same principle that we have in Acts 15 that is given. This is what we would have you to do. Lastly, I promise. Let's look at verse 36 and following. The sending of Paul on the second missionary journey. Particularly, let's look at verse 37. Barnabas wanted, determined to take John, who is called Mark. Along with them, also, but Paul was of the opinion that they should not take him along with them because he was the man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Something here for us to glean, for us to learn about choosing a man for ministry. John Mark had, I've heard people say, look, oh, Paul thought he deserted. I'm not sure. John Mark deserted them, he was there, he was the helper. And he said, I'm out of here, I'm going home. He deserted them. And this demonstrates in him an immaturity. I I know this was a maturity matter and not a character matter. And you can know this too. If a man has a character shortage, if a man is short of character, then there must be an exclusion from ministry, absolutely. But later, the apostle Paul, who had said, no, we're not taking John Mark. And and by the way, this was not just loosely held particular preferences. This was strong enough that Paul and Barnabas, the dream team missionary duo, split. This was a big deal. And Paul, Who said, I will not go with John Mark, later says, Send John Mark. He's a value to me. Later he saw value. So it wasn't a character issue, it's a maturity issue. John Mark had grown up a good bit. And he was even used to write the New Testament gospel that bears his name. Church, there, there are times when we must declare that a man who is desiring ministry, desiring ministry, we must say he's unfit. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to say, but it's, it's we must sometimes. But there are other times. And this text shows us one of them when a man needs a bit more time, a bit more maturity more seasoning, more conviction. And that's what Paul is standing for here. We see this disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. It's such a disagreement that leads to this permanent division. So it's not just a mild preference. It was a deeply impassioned belief on the part of both men. Barnabas felt like John Mark was fit for ministry at that time. And Paul felt like he was not. And there was a split And we learn here this painful truth. Divisions come. Divisions come in the church. There are divisions that come because of divisive men and women either in the membership or in the leadership of the church and that is sinful. That is wrong and it is hurtful. It is sad. Many Christians, Some of you listening today, you have felt the pain of this kind of division with a divisive person. And you bear the scars of that awful, awful thing. We often say there's no hurt like church hurt. There's divisions because of divisive people. There are divisions over important doctrinal matters. What if the Jerusalem council had gone another way? What if some of them had said, no, we do believe that we need to do, we need to add to the gospel. Then that could have been a split over doctrinal matters. But praise be to God, they agreed. There was agreement between the apostles and the elders of the churches. But we know of division of splits over doctrine. Now, now Brother Taylor shared some, some things Churches split over stupid stuff. I I grew up in a church that was very independent. There was a problem there. But there was another church that we knew of that had built a new building. That's that's testing. And it wasn't the color of the carpet. Everybody knows that a church should have red carpet just like the blood of Jesus. That was the general consensus. But when they went to buy the toilet tissue to go in the restrooms, now back in the 80s, toilet tissue was sold in colors. Y'all remember that? Anybody? Y'all, y'all remember colored toilet tissue? This church split over the issue of what colored toilet paper they would put in the bathrooms. Now surely there were other underlying things. But I'll never forget that. My pastor called it the tissue issue. They, they split over the tissue issue. And, and it's... You know, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, such a disgrace. I got to get back to here. I'm going to be here all day. There are splits. There are divisions over doctrinal issues, and we have seen this kind of split in our own association, a split in our national association, arose over the classical theological doctrine of divine impassibility. If you want to know the details of that, I won't take time now, but I'd love to talk to you about it later. This threat to the doctrine of God, saying that God is more like a man, this threat would potentially lead churches of the association to a paganized understanding of who God is. A council was called, the elders of the churches met. This was before we were officially members of the association, but I was there present in the meeting. Theological study was done. Reports were given to the churches and many of the churches stood by with by casting their vote. They stood by the classical biblical doctrine holding the line as biblically conservative Christian churches. Others denied the doctrine and abandoned the Bible's teaching and they were removed from fellowship and membership in the associated churches. That division was necessary. That division was heartbreaking. Your heart goes, who wants to see a man who, who is a pastor of a church denying the biblical doctrine of God? It's heartbreaking, but it was necessary. And ultimately, we must say it was a good split. It was a good split. <laughs> I will never forget in a meeting when one man stood and said, I hated to see that split. And I didn't want it to happen. My brother David Dykstra stood up and said, I'm glad it happened. Isn't that seem cold hearted had to happen for the doctrine. It had to happen to stay faithful to Scripture. It was necessary. The v- division in Acts 15 toward the end here, this division between Paul and Barnabas, it's neither sinful, divisive people, nor is it doctrinal things. This is a split that makes it difficult to point to error or sin on either side. Barnabas really we have to say Barnabas had every right to his opinion That John Mark belonged in the ministry We can appreciate Barnabas' loyalty to this young man His faithfulness to want to Pour into this young man and want to bring him along Boy we can appreciate that Remember uh, John Mark was his Cousin But Paul also had Every right to his opinion And I personally believe that Paul was correct it seems clear that Mark did need some time to ripen on the vine, as it were. We can't say here that Barnabas was in sin. We can't say here that Paul was in sin. We can hope that even in this case of division, that there was there was continued ministry of God. And we know there, there was. We see in the New Testament Paul's ministry laid out in detail, and we see later that John Mark is writing the book, the Gospel of Mark. We, we see that there was ministry that continued. This really resulted in the multiplication of the workers and the, the effect of the ministry of God. It, it's a blessing. But that doesn't make it less difficult. We know when we see things like this, and I, I believe this would be the case for Barnabas and for Paul, that there's got to be forgiveness. There's got to be, you can't hold hard feelings and a grudge. That's what must be here. So let's land this plane. There's so much here in Acts 15. So much to learn, so much to caution us, to warn us, so much to teach us about how the church should be organized, about our ecclesiology, how the church should operate and function. Let us pray that God would teach us as a church among other churches of like faith and order so that we might bring glory to him through the acts of his church. Triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that you apply these things to our heart. Sanctify your people, edify the church. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our dear. Lord and Savior. Amen.